You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Remember how at the top of last week's show I said I wouldn't talk about politics at the top of this week's show? Yeah, uh, I lied. The only sex topic that really aroused my interest this week was some research into the stark differences between the sexual fantasies of Republicans and Democrats. This research was done by Dr. Justin Lay Miller, who you should be familiar with. He's been on the show. And it turns out that Republicans fantasize a lot about infidelity, mate swapping, group sex, cuckolding, you know, the party of family values. And Democrats, the party of social justice, equity, equality, fantasize a lot about bondage, S&M, dom-sub relationships, ravishment, because, of course, for Republicans, power imbalances are just another day at the office, just the way things ought to be, while for Dems, a power imbalance is a great, big, fat, juicy, transgressive taboo. But, you know, talking about Justin's research meant talking about politics, so I figured I might as well go ahead and talk about politics, even if it means breaking the semi-solemn promise I kind of sort of made you last Tuesday to give it a rest this Tuesday. I am, however, not going to make the mistake I made on a certain Tuesday in November of 2016. I am not going to get all optimistic on your asses. I am not going to make any sunny predictions about the results today. Because I am still hearing from people who listen to the opening of that Tuesday show a couple of days later and are still wrecked by it. I, I just want to say this. Whatever happens today, if, please, baby Jesus, the blue wave is high enough to crash over the seawalls erected by corrupt Republicans and the advantages baked into our system for conservatives by our founding slave-owning fathers, tiny conservative states get two senators, large liberal states with 40 times the population get two senators. If we do it today, we can't declare victory. We can't spike the ball and go home because we've got to stop thinking of this, this war we're engaged in as something we can wrap up in one election. We're not engaged in a fight for our democracy. This is a fight for democracy, period. And we don't really live in a democracy anymore if we ever did it all. The Senate is an anti-small-D democratic institution. The Electoral College is an anti-small-D democratic institution. Gerrymandering and voting suppression efforts, the UN really should be sending election observers into Kansas and Georgia. Those have rendered the House an anti-small-D democratic institution. And with four of the five justices on the conservative block of the Supreme Court having been appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote, we can no longer pretend if we ever could, that the Supreme Court is a democratic institution. This isn't a tilted playing field. This is the upside down. So it's not enough to take the House or, please, baby Jesus, the Senate. We're going to have to push. We're going to have to demand. We're going to have to fight. We're going to have to go to political, non-bloodshedy war for an end to partisan gerrymandering. We have to balance the Senate by granting statehood to Puerto Rico, population 3.4 million, and Washington, D.C., population 700,000, giving them two senators each, the same number of senators as Wyoming, population 580,000. And we have to get rid of the fucking electoral college so that every vote in every state matters, so that the person who loses the popular vote never again somehow wins the election. 
David Frum wrote in The Atlantic earlier this year, if conservatives become convinced they cannot win democratically, they will not abandon conservatism. They will reject democracy. They are convinced they cannot win democratically. That's why they cheat. And they have rejected democracy. That's who we're fighting. Wannabe authoritarians who, as of this morning, currently control every branch of government. Going to be a long, hard fight because we're going to have to fight on that upside-down playing field. But Democrats, the base, leaders, electeds need to start campaigning on statehood for Puerto Rico and D.C. and end partisan gerrymandering, abolishing the Electoral College. Only big D Democrats can save small D democracy. And if we can do it, if we can win not just today's battle but this fucking war, yeah, it's going to make it harder for Republicans to win elections, at least until Republicans come up with policies that appeal to a majority of the electorate instead of policies that appeal only to their white nativist racist base coupled with voter suppression efforts designed to bleach the vote. If we can change this system and it makes it harder for you to win free and fair elections again, you'll have a lot more time on your hands to jack it to cuckold porn. All right, coming up on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as long and no ads, Tristan Taromino joins us to talk about strapping it on, pegging. Also, it should be noted, a popular sexual fantasy among Republicans. And on the micro, free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a straight woman in my early 20s, and I have a question about my relationship with a friend. Um, We were friends throughout elementary and high school, and we still talk regularly and see each other a few times a year, even though we live in different cities. My question is about a couple of conversations that I had with her in eighth or ninth grade when we were both 12 or 13. Um, She disclosed to me that she was self-harming, and I made a really shitty, unsupportive comment about her motives for doing it. Um, And then in a different conversation around the same time, she asked me, if I liked girls, and I also shot her down in a pretty shaming way. Um, she since caught his by, so I can only assume that that was an attempt to initiate a conversation with me about it. And I have no excuse for my behavior and shitty actions in either situation, other than that I was 12 and in a conservative part of the country. So my question is whether I should apologize to her. Um, she might not even remember these conversations, in which case I'd only be transferring my burden of guilt to her or make her feel like she has to comfort me or something like that, which I obviously don't want. But I'm also thinking of people posting stories from their childhood on Facebook or something for a coming out day of people being shitty to them. And if that's the case for her, then maybe an apology would be appreciated from me. Um, either way, I don't want to make it about me and my guilt. Um, I just know I said some really hurtful, problematic things to a close friend, and I'm not sure if there's a way to start to make it right. I'm going to pick this needle up and attempt to thread it. I think you should raise the issue with your friend about those two conversations where you weren't able to be the person at that moment that she may have needed you to be and you failed her as a friend, but I don't necessarily think that you should apologize because you were 12 years old. You weren't equipped to have this conversation. You were out of your depth. This was way above your pay grade. So you did fail her, but not out of malice. You didn't have the tools you needed at the time to give her the support and the assistance that she needed. And okay, maybe you can apologize, but I don't think that you need to put on a hair shirt or flagellate yourself or prostrate yourself at her feet for having failed her at that time. You were 12 years old. She was 12 years old. I imagine there were other people in her life at that time who were failing her, other people who played a larger role in her life and could have offered her more assistance and should have and could have or even did know better. 
and failed her because they were shitty or judgmental or malicious. So I think you could have this conversation with your friend where you just bring up these two incidents that weigh on your conscience and that you want to acknowledge and address and let her know that you're in a place now where you can be the friend that she needs whenever she needs in a way that you weren't in a place then where you could be the friend that she needed at that time. And then you're wrapping your apology up in a promise. And then you've kind of got a turducken on your hands. You've got an apology wrapped up in an acknowledgement, wrapped up in a promise. You're apologizing for how you failed her, although I, again, don't think that you should wear a hair shirt about it. You're acknowledging where you were then in your development and why you weren't able to be the person that she needed you to be at that moment for her. And you're promising her that you can be now that person going forward. It is possible that she confided these two things to you at 12. You had these reactions, which she didn't expect, wasn't what she needed. And she may have issues or secrets or problems now that she feels she couldn't share with you for fear that you'll have the same inadequate reaction. And you're telling her, no, I am the friend you need now in a way that I wasn't the friend you needed then. Hi, Dan. I am uh, 24 years old, living in a major East Coast city, and I'm just uh, getting out of a, a short-term non-monogamous relationship with this girl. And she, entering the relationship, she was coming off of an addiction of uh, pain medication and anxiety medication, trying to tone it down, and I accepted that going into the relationship, and you know, down the road, things started getting worse, and um, she's been very up and down, and I just ended up having to cut it off, and it happened uh, yesterday, and today, I go to check my phone, and I get a message from her with a picture with really, really deep cuts all over her arms, and I've, I've been in relationships before with the woman who used to cut before, but um, this is something where, you know, she may need medical attention, and I know she doesn't have many outlets here and or a good relationship with her parents, and I only know one of her friends, and she just sent me another message saying that basically beat her on the bush that she wants to uh, hurt herself even more. So my question is, even though I'm out of this relationship, am I obligated to, or should I, reach out to one of her peers to let them know what's going on or should I not not do anything? Like, is this her trying to, to move me back into a relationship in the form of manipulation? Um, not really sure what to do here. I do tend to gravitate towards the caring side of a relationship and that's part of the reason why I decided to end this one is because I was entering this fatherly role. But I forgot to mention I'm not sure if I did, but I'm only 24, and um, I'm trying to seek out open, casual relationships, but uh, I found myself in this place again. This is a sad situation, but your question is a pretty simple one, and the answer is equally simple. You ask whether you should contact her friends and family. Absolutely, you should definitely contact her friends and family, and if it escalates, you should contact the police and ask them to do a well-person check. She has essentially taken herself hostage and she's harming herself to manipulate you into taking her back. And then what? You can never exit this relationship that you don't wish to be in because she's always going to have 
figuratively a gun pointed at her own head, unless you're willing to spend the next six or seven decades of your life with her, you can't cave to that. You have to pivot away from it. And the way you pivot away from it is by calling in the cavalry in the form of friends and family and stepping out. And then she will know that if she sends you these images, if she sends you these threatening texts where she's threatening herself in an effort to manipulate you, that isn't going to result in you rushing to her side, which is what she wants. It's going to result in friends and family intervening as they should. And it sounds like they need to. Hey, Dan, I'm a 36-year-old heteroflexible married woman in an open marriage, and I've been exploring a lot with men, and I'm a little concerned about STI risk. I'm down for oral, receiving it and giving it, and I like to swallow. And I, I know that the risks are low, but I just wanted to hopefully have you reiterate how low and uh, let me know. <laughs> what my risks really are because it's a lot of fun and it's something I really enjoy doing for my partner and receiving also. Thanks so much. When people say in regards to oral sex that the risks are low, what they mean and what they're regurgitating, whether they know it or not, is something that we said a lot and that people heard a lot during the worst years of the HIV AIDS epidemic, which is that the risk of transmission, the risks for oral are low or transmission of HIV. HIV, which is very easily transmitted during anal intercourse, transmitted, not generated. You have to be having sex with someone who has HIV to contract HIV. There's also a risk during vaginal intercourse, not as significant as during anal, but what we learned, research and study and science, was that the risk of transmission during oral was very, very low, unless there was a cut or an open sore in the mouth. But the risk, if you're having sex with someone who has gonorrhea or syphilis or chlamydia during oral sex, the risk of transmission, pretty significant if you're having sex with someone who has one of these sexually transmitted infections. Also, herpes, pretty easily transmitted. These are things you might have wanted to look up and think about before you began having sex with other people. You are, when you open up your relationship, when you have sex with multiple partners, that pleasure that you're obtaining comes bundled with a greater degree of risk. And you have to ask yourself, are the rewards you're benefiting from, the intimacy, the contact, the pleasure, the release, worth the risk? And if the answer is no, then you shouldn't be blowing a lot of other guys. You should be in a monogamous relationship. Not that that's magic and can protect you from all sexually transmitted infections. Lots of people in monogamous committed, what they thought were closed relationships contract sexually transmitted infections. Some CDC stats, 1.7 million cases of chlamydia in 2017. That's a 22% increase since 2013. Also in 2017, half a million, actually more than half a million cases of gonorrhea, a 67% increase since 2013. Syphilis, 30,000 plus cases in 2017, a 76% increase since 2013. Now, I don't want to give you any false impressions. A lot of these cases, particularly of gonorrhea and syphilis, are among gay and bi men. PrEP, the daily drug regimen that gay and bi men are urged to uh, get on to protect themselves from HIV, offer no protection from syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia. And we are seeing in gay and bi male communities a huge spike in cases of syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. Less so in straight land, but the trends are up also in straight land. So... If you're out there having sex with multiple male heterosexual partners, there is risk. 
there is risk when you enjoy oral sex. So monitor your health, get tested regularly, maybe see the same partners if you're going to have multiple partners again and again, guys you've come to know and trust. Not that that's an assurance that you could never contract a sexually transmitted infection from one of them, but known trusted partners that you know test regularly like you do, less likely to pass a sexually transmitted infection on to you. Hi, Dan. So when I was 23, I was dating a guy. We went on a camping trip together. And after I'd repeatedly told him that I didn't want to have sex, um, told me that I was making things difficult for him, pulled my panties down around my ankles, and had sex with me against my will. I, it took me a while to break up with him. And I did. He would do things like police my Facebook. And um, I broke contact with him. I'm 28 now. And I Googled him and found out that he has just moved in with a girl. The girl that he was dating before he dated me. Looking at her Twitter, it was all retweets about Kavanaugh. And I want so badly to reach out to this girl. There's another element here, which is also that... Um, I have herpes and he had genital warts, which I saw. So I had disclosed my herpes to him, um, which he gave me a lot of shit for and slut shamed me for, um, but I disclosed and he, uh, he did not disclose his, his words to me. And I have plenty of reasons to believe that a, he hasn't tested for herpes since we were together and B he, he probably hasn't told this girl that he's done awards. I've seen her Twitter and I don't know if I should reach out to her. I think if I were dating somebody who had done these things and Kavanaugh and all this stuff mattered to me, I would want to know. I don't want to go public with it. I like, I don't want to call him out. I don't know what to do here, Dan. I think you should say something to her. You need to decide what kind of saying something to her you're comfortable with. If you contact her directly and ask to meet up with her or tell her who you are and give her your name and your history with this guy, he may find out that you reached out to his girlfriend. She may go to him and tell him that you called her with these accusations, these truths, and are you – and do you fear for your safety if that gets back to him? Because going to her as yourself, meeting up with her, you run the risk of her going to him and telling him everything. You also run the risk, however you decide to contact her, of her reacting defensively and siding with him in this dispute. As we've seen as with some women when they find out it was their partner uh, who has been accused credibly of sexual abuse or rape or assault. Hey there, Julie Chen. They will – Leap to the side of their partner, their male partner. And she may do that. She may perceive you as a vindictive ex or he may convince her that you are a vindictive ex if she goes to him and, and talks to him about what you told her. So there's contacting her as yourself, outing yourself, her knowing your name, and then him potentially finding out you spoke to his new girlfriend in an attempt to warn her, also an attempt to hold him morally accountable, if not legally accountable. And you dated him. He raped you. Someone who's capable of raping a person is certainly capable of stalking or assaulting that person in anger. The other option, of course, is to reach out to her anonymously, to create a Gmail account, 
to track down her email or create a, a, an account on Twitter that isn't identified with you and send her some direct messages, letting her know about this person that she's with now. She dated him before you dated him, so it's possible she knows how awful a piece of shit human being he is. Also possible that he hasn't revealed himself to be the awful, shitty, monstrous human being that he is to her in the same way that he revealed it to you. If he hasn't demonstrated that to her, if he hasn't attempted to isolate her, if he hasn't sexually assaulted her, if he hasn't gaslit her about sexually transmitted infections or slut-shamed her, she may be disinclined to believe you when you tell her that he did all these things to you, things that he has not done to her yet. But she could be now in this relationship with him and have perceived and then ignored or rationalized away some red flags, his first attempts at isolating her, perhaps some sexual encounters that were coercive, that she felt icky and gross about afterwards and then rationalized away as a misunderstanding, but contextualized with the information that you're going to give her, she will see them for what they are. The first steps toward isolating her so that he can abuse her and the coercive sex not being ambiguous, but actually being rape adjacent and soon to be rape itself. Holding a rapist accountable legally, the bar is set high because of he said, she said, who do you believe? Reasonable doubt-ishness. But I think you should reach out to her, but you need to think it through how you want to go about reaching out to her. As yourself, name attached with the potential that that will get back to him. And there may be blowback for you or anonymously. And of course, the problem with anonymously is she may be less likely to take it seriously without being able to look in your eye or have a conversation with you. It may be easier for her to dismiss, but you have to weigh your own personal safety while you determine what you're going to do to help protect this woman who's a stranger to you from the monster that she's with now. Hi, I'm actually kind of curious about something. My partner, we've been together about four years now and we are engaged, but he's never been like a super, super vocal person during sex. Uh, he's, you know, he's enjoyed it, obviously. He looks like he's enjoying it and also says it. But like recently, all of a sudden he has been extremely vocal and I don't know really what the change is about. Um it just kind of makes me nervous because, of course, I always go to thinking the worst because I have trust issues. But, uh, yeah, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what what could be the cause of that? You know, maybe he is he just going to be is he a little bit more comfortable or what is going on? What's the difference is? You've been with this person for four years. You are engaged to be married and you can't go to him and say, what's up? I've noticed something's changed like you're much more vocal during sex don't have a problem with that just you kind of switched gears and curious where that came from what inspired you are you feeling more comfortable with me after four fucking years what is it but you didn't ask him that you asked me to get in my magic machine and burrow into his brain and dig through the synapses and figure it out for you to ask to to to, to somehow Find out for you what the fuck is up with your fiance. And I can't possibly know the answer to that question. The only person who knows the answer to that question is your fiance. What I want to challenge you on is the inadvisability of marrying someone 
that you can't communicate with or are afraid to communicate with or feel too inhibited to communicate with. Over the course of your marriage, there are going to be many, many times people grow and change. That's why sometimes you hear people get divorced and they say we kind of grew apart. People will become not entirely different people, but they will take on new interests and their behaviors will change. And you need to be able to have frank and open conversations with your partner about the person that they are, the person that they're becoming. And it would seem, I'm inferring here, that you aren't comfortable having that kind of a conversation with your partner. And that is worrisome. So before you get married, before you scramble your DNA together, let's take this as a test run. Imagine some future circumstance where your partner, who's always been a teetotaler, starts knocking him back three or four beers a night. You're going to want to be able to say to him, hey, you're drinking a lot more than you used to. You okay? Just developed a taste for it? Is this something I need to be worried about? Are you even conscious of the fact that you're drinking a lot more than you used to drink? There also might come a point in your marriage where your partner starts displaying some symptoms of a physical ailment or a, or a mental illness, and you're going to have to be able to go to your partner and say, hey, what's up? I'm worried about you. I'm concerned. This is manifesting in our marriage, and we need to be able to talk about it. So... The fact that he's much more vocal right now during sex, that's small beans. It's really small beans. Maybe he saw some porn uh, where people were being vocal and he's like, you know what? I want some of that. Or maybe he read something online where a woman was complaining about her male partner being stoic and silent during sex and not giving her the feedback that she wanted. And she wasn't feeling affirmed because he didn't seem to be enjoying himself because he wasn't really saying anything. And that's why he cranked this up. He may be doing it. Not to spook you or scare you, but to please you. And if it isn't pleasing you or it's weirding you out, you need to be able to talk to him about that. So go talk to him about that. Don't talk to me about that. I don't know the answer. But I do know that your unwillingness to ask him this direct and perfectly legitimate and small beans question is concerning if indeed you plan to marry this man. Hey, Dan, I'm a 45-year-old straight man. In May of 2017, I moved out of my home with my family of 12 years. That July, I met a younger woman, and we immediately, what I thought, fell in love, honestly. Uh, we developed a daddy-dom sub-little relationship, which was very strong and very connecting. And uh, I know there's a big age difference. It's a 20-year age difference. Um, but when we met, there was a connection. We dated for about, I don't know, literally two weeks. And she told me that she was still involved in sex work and was really trying to stop. Uh, I did everything in my power to help her, uh, including having her move into my apartment uh, so she could feel a little more safe. Uh, after her sex work, after she finished and promised she wasn't going back, she then revealed that she had a bipolar disorder, which I knew anyway, really. Uh, we worked through it. It got really dark. It got really light. We did a lot of travel together throughout 2018. And about a month ago, I asked her for three days space because I was really tired. She then said, if you need the three-day space, we are now broken up for good. 
She blocked me on all social media, telephone, emails, everything. Couldn't get in touch with her. Really had not gone through any kind of like drop like this in my life. Uh, she finally reached out to me two weeks later, somewhat begging to see me, then revealed that she had been dating another guy five or six times. He was new. He doesn't mean anything. Well, this guy is now going away. And for 10 days, she has been over at my house a few times. We've slept together probably three or four times in the past week. I'm really emotionally sensitive. I really feel like I totally just got played. So the day before he leaves on his 10 day trip, she says, I think it's time that we stop talking for these next 10 days. She's blocked me again and she's gone. And I guess what's happened is she probably promised this dude that she wouldn't talk to me and she's preparing to leap into another relationship. Can you please help me? Help you what? I'm not sure what exactly I'm supposed to do here. You had kind of a crazy fun roller coaster ride of a DS relationship with someone who we don't want to stigmatize her for her mental illness. Certainly, certainly not. But somebody who is impulsive, somebody who is unpredictable, somebody who isn't a good long-term prospect, at least for you. And it is over. She has ended it. Seemingly, she's ended it twice. She ended it the first time and then you kind of took her back on her terms, even though she had blocked you on social media and cut things off in a kind of abrupt and cruel way after you made a perfectly reasonable request for just a little bit of space. And you took her back and now she's gone again. She may be back. She may circle back to you again when she's in a bad place or needs your support, emotional or financial. And then you're going to have to ask yourself if you want to get back on this fucking roller coaster. As Maya Angelou said, when someone tells you who they are, believe them the first fucking time. And she's told you, Maya Angelou, of course, didn't include fucking. I added that. So I'm paraphrasing Maya Angelou technically there, but believe them the first fucking time. And she has told you that she's a little bit all over the place, kind of a manic pixie dream girl, but not a transformative one who improves your life and... The end and happily ever after, kind of manic pixie dream girl who gave you a really amazing experience, sort of a transitional sexual relationship out of your marital relationship after your divorce, and and it's over, and probably needs to be over, and you don't need my help to end it. She ended it twice. Take that pair of big fat fucking nose for the answers that they are. Hey Dan, I am a twenty-six-year-old. Married male, uh, straight. Uh, I've been married for only two years, and I've been with the person for quite a while. We dated, started dating uh, right after high school, which you know was about six or eight years ago, I guess now. I'm calling because I recently moved uh, here near Idaho recently, and I moved from out of state, pretty far away, and I started a new job where there is this lady who is also married and pregnant and I am incredibly attracted to her. I'm, I, I, like, I feel like I'm, very, I'm happily married, but this woman is just so intriguing and I'm just so drawn to her for some reason and I have no idea why. Um, and it's kind of freaking me out a little bit just because of how intense the attraction is and I'm not, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, obviously I'm just going to shut, shut up about it, but yeah, if you could just 
let me know if that's normal or what's going on. That would be great. It's perfectly normal to be attracted to people who aren't your wife. It's perfectly normal to develop crushes on coworkers or neighbors. That's why a monogamous commitment is a commitment and not some sort of default setting, not some sort of autopilot that kicks in when we fall in love with one person. You make a monogamous commitment and what you're telling that person is, I will refrain from fucking other people. It doesn't mean you won't want to fuck other people. It doesn't mean you won't develop crushes, awkward perhaps inappropriate, complicated crushes on other people, you will. The trick in a monogamous relationship is to not fuck that other person because you are in a monogamous relationship and you made a monogamous commitment. And unless your crush is interested in you sexually and would like to act on it, and unless your wife is willing to renegotiate the terms of your monogamous commitment, and unless your crush's husband is willing to renegotiate the terms of their monogamous commitment, this can't happen. Now, the thing about crushes and infatuations is even if they're never acted on, they tend to have a a half-life, a shelf-life. They tend to burn out in time. So you can power your way through this. You can just say, it's a crush, but I am not going to touch that person with the tip of my penis because I don't want to blow up my marriage and masturbate your way through it. But I'm surprised that you're a listener to the show and you don't know what is going on here. You're married to your wife whom presumably you love, and you want to fuck somebody else because, of course, you do. Because you're, as the old saying goes, married, not dead. Circling back to that autopilot, it is pumped out there in the culture that if you love someone, people get this idea from television, rom-coms, and novels, and the bullshit that people pump into their kids' heads that if you love someone, you won't want to sleep with someone else. And then you love someone and you marry that person and suddenly you meet somebody that you really want to sleep with. And if you aren't aware that that is normal and a thing that happens, even in the context of a loving, committed relationship that you have no desire to exit, you may tell yourself that this is a sign that you don't really love your spouse because you can only feel this way about one person at a time. And if you feel this way about your coworker, you must not feel this way anymore about your husband or your wife. So this myth that we – this myth, this way that we conflate love and monogamy and sort of mush them together into one feeling is really destructive. It undermines committed monogamous relationships and we need to not promote this myth, not tell this lie that if you love someone, you won't want to sleep with anybody else. If you love someone and you make a monogamous commitment, you are still going to want to fuck other people. Honoring your monogamous commitment – means you don't get to fuck other people. Hi, Dan. I am 32, cisgendered, white female. The other day, um, I was helping my boyfriend of 10 years with some grad school work and saw a few video attachments in an email that he had sent to himself. They were of another woman masturbating, and I know who she is, and they've had an online friendship for a long time, over five years. And even though it has made me uncomfortable, I have pretty much tried to stop any uncomfortable feelings that I have towards the situation because they seem to have a genuinely nice friendship. I did not know that there was a sexual element to their relationship until I recently found these emails. And he was sitting next to me when I opened the email with the attachments. And he said that he had just sent himself some hot pornos to watch later. And I didn't push it at the time. Instead, I waited until now and opened the uh, email again myself, which he had moved to the trash folder. Uh, We don't have an open relationship. And he definitely would not be okay with me having this sort of relationship with a man online. 
and I'm not at a point of wanting to leave him over this. I guess I just want help framing it. We've been together 10 years and have a genuinely good relationship. Um, is this considered an affair? Do I have the right to tell him that he can't have any level of friendship with her anymore? I guess I just need to know where on the spectrum of being fucked up this is. The fact that he can have this kind of relationship or allow himself to have this kind of relationship, but you know because you have this sense of who he is or because he's actually told you this, he would not allow you to have this kind of ongoing flirtatious relationship with someone that you're not having a physical relationship with. That's fucked up. So you need to talk to him about that. You need to confront him about what you found and what it means and what's permissible in your relationship. Now, you say you've had a good relationship for 10 years, and this has been going on with this other person that he has this online friendship with for five years. Now, often when people find out that their partner has been doing something like this, not having sex, physical sex with another person, but having some ongoing flirtatious, even swapping some dirty sex kind of contact with another person, they will look back on all the time that they've been together that that's been going on and say, ah, our relationship was alive. What I thought was good was actually terrible. And that ain't necessarily so. It is possible for you to have had a good relationship and for this thing that is not good to have existed concurrently with that good relationship. So please don't take your 10 years and cut them in half and throw the last five years away because of this. But you have to have a conversation about this, what it means, what he's doing, what's allowed, what accommodation you might be willing to make if he needs this kind of affirmation from a stranger at a safe distance about his sexual attractiveness, but what then you deserve in return and what's allowed you in return because it can't be that he's allowed to flirt online with other women and swap jack-off videos with other women, but he would blow up in a jealous rage if you were doing the same with another man. So you're going to have to have a conversation. You're going to have to use your words. This could wind up being a relationship extinction level event kind of conversation because he may reveal to you when he has this conversation sexist and deeply misogynistic attitudes about what a man is allowed in a long-term relationship versus what a woman is allowed in a long-term relationship. And if you don't want to be in relationship with someone, and I don't think you would want to be in relationship with someone with those kinds of double standards, you might want to pull the plug. Uh, hey, Dan. Uh, this is a 20-year-old uh, non-binary person from the Midwest. And I have a, an interesting or maybe unique uh, question about BDSM. So I'm asexual, and I just recently got involved in my uh, BDSM community. And being asexual, I'm kind of concerned that because I, I'm not interested in sex or the fact that I'm not in it for any sexual reasons, I feel like I might be invading like a safe space for these people. Like I'm, I'm very respectful of it. I'm very open about why I'm there and what I'm doing. But uh, I always feel like I might be encroaching on this space that people feel more comfortable being in with sexually open just being queer myself i know what that's like so if you could maybe assure me of this uh, that'd be great you are not a fraud 
Let go of this imposter syndrome bullshit. You're entering BDSM spaces. You're being upfront about who you are, sexually, non-binary, asexual, but you enjoy the BDSM activities, which for others are rooted in their sexuality and rooted in desire, but you're deriving some other kind of pleasure, intimacy, connection that doesn't conflict with your asexuality or your non-binary status. And so long as the people that you're playing with don't object to playing with people who enjoy the activities in a different way than they're enjoying them. You aren't misleading anyone. You aren't doing anything wrong. I've been to leather fetish kink events where there were straight men playing with gay men who were subbing or doming for gay men. And the gay man was experiencing it very differently than the straight man was experiencing it. For the straight man, it was maybe just about the technique or the sensations. And for the gay man, it was also about the eroticism and the male-male sort of heat and sexuality. But everybody was out and open about it and no one was misleading anyone. The straight guys weren't pretending they weren't straight. The gay guys weren't pretending that they weren't vibing on the straight guy's maleness. And it was all perfectly legit. I've also seen gay guys play with lesbians in BDSM spaces and lesbians play with straight men in BDSM spaces. And you as an asexual playing with sexuals in a BDSM space, there ain't nothing wrong with that. And there's a lot like that that's been going on in BDSM spaces forever. And your presence is perfectly welcome and perfectly legitimate. And you need to stop wringing your hands about it. Hey, Dan. Um, I'm a 22-year-old female in the Midwest. I'm extremely GGG. I am bicurious. Um, I've been talking to this guy for a year. We've been having sex for about six months, and we've been dating for a little over two now. When we cuddle, I really like sometimes to be the big spoon. And I notice that when I'm the big spoon and I move my hips sometimes, he'll, you know, moan. And sometimes before in sex, you know, his asshole has come into play. So I've kind of thought about getting, you know, some butt plugs or something like that before. But this morning, it got to the point where every time I'd move my hips and he would moan, it would turn us both on to the point where we actually ended up having sex off of it. And he asked me, you know, during sex, if I would want to fuck him. And, you know, of course I do. I think that'd be awesome. But a strap-on kind of, like, freaks me out just a little bit, just because I can't feel what I'm doing to him kind of thing. And I've never really bought a sex toy before, I guess. So if you would let me know if there are any, I guess, brands to avoid or any advice, how should I fuck my boyfriend with a strap-on, I guess, because I'm really interested. Joining me to help tackle this call, Tristan Taramino, author of The Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex for Women and the host of the podcast, the weekly podcast, Sex Out Loud, and therefore a bitter rival of mine. Hey, Tristan. Hi, bitter rival. <laughs> no, no, I think there's room in the world for two sex podcasts, but <laughs> just, just you two. and me just two, and nobody else. Okay, or maybe 50. I mean, how many are there? <laughs> <laughs> so I thought of you when I got this question because you literally wrote the book, The Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex for Women. I think a lot of people look at that title and think that it means receptive anal sex for women, but that's not the case. Right. I have an entire chapter about women who partner with men and want to penetrate them, also known as pegging, which you're responsible for coining that term. 
my readers get all the credit. It was a neologism they voted. They submitted that. That was the winning pick by my readers. So that was the collective wisdom of my little crowd. I can't claim credit. I'm excited that this person is in their 20s. It gives me hope for mankind and the future. So she has been cuddling this guy. And whenever she big spoons him and rocks her hips, he, I guess, presents like a baboon and backs up a little bit on her and moans. And she extrapolated from his physical cues that he might like anal play and was thinking about surprising him with a butt plug. I'm myself in the don't surprise people with butt toys column, but she was thinking about it. And it turns out that she had accurately read his physical cues because he used his words and told her that he would like him to fuck her ass. And she is freaked out by strap-ons. Why would someone be freaked out by a strap-on, do you think? Well, I think it makes sense. First of all, I think as women, it's an entirely new sexual experience once you strap a dick between your legs. Um, so it's it's an entirely new way of giving pleasure. And I agree with her that you can't feel in the way that someone with a cock can feel. And so you're afraid you might hurt your partner. Mm-hmm. But now for for the, for everybody out there who just went what can you tell oh. explain what you mean by ciscock? Oh yeah, ciscock is a, a cock that belongs to a man who was um, identified at birth as a man and still identifies as a man. You have a ciscock, and there are trans women out there with ciscock as well. Yes. Okay. Would trans people like having their cocks described as cis? A trans woman to hear like that little part of your body is cis? Total. I think we might have just stumbled into a Oh, gosh. No, right. And they all have different names for their genitals. And we have to sort of respect whatever anyone wants to call their stuff. Agreed. Let's put a pin in that and move on. Okay. So you can't feel what you're doing with the cock. Now, when you're having sex with someone, if I'm having sex with someone, let's like use my cock as an example. I can feel with my cock, skin, nerve endings, lots of them. But I can't necessarily feel what their experience of my cock is. I still have to read their physical cues and solicit, as a good partner, their their verbal cues and, and feedback. So it's not like having a cis cock is magic and you just know what to do with it. No, no, of course not. But I do like the idea of her starting out with fingers with her partner because I, I do feel like I want her to kind of get used to his butt and get the lay of the land and feel what it feels like when she penetrates him before we introduce toys. I I think fingers also have a lot of nerve endings. They send messages back to your brain. They're a good exploratory tool. As are tongues. Mm -hmm. Sparkling clean butt presumed when we start talking about rimming. Right. But tongues work too. Uh, And, you know, if you want to get a feel for how he responds, I think keep spooning him but also you can put a thigh between his ass cheeks and apply pressure to his taint and his butt region and get a feel for what it's going to look like how he's going to rock when he gets fucked yeah i think there's also a lot of positions that you can set up so that he can actually control the penetration so whether it's doggy style or him on top he can actually back up on the dick or he can sit down on the dick and that way he can go at his own pace and you know he's ready for more because he's actually made the move. I also want to encourage you to go get that butt plug she was thinking about getting initially. I think that's a great you know, bridge toy between tongues and fingers and getting reamed. A butt plug for a guy, particularly a guy who's never been fucked before, is I think a great intermediary step. Uh, some guys, it's the end point. Like that's the, the kind of anal play that they enjoy and that's it. And that's totally valid. But to have an orgasm, for him to have an orgasm with, a, you know, the, the pressure and the pleasure of a, of a butt plug set inside and not 
slamming in and out mm-hmm. of him, I think he can create a powerful association between pleasure and being penetrated. And he can also experiment by himself. We don't know that he hasn't, but he can experiment in his own masturbation routine and get used to it and be able to give her even more feedback when they have sex together. I think I know how you might respond to this, but would it be wise of them to watch a little bit of strap-on porn? Oh, sure. You know, I have a little video. It's called The Expert Guide to Pegging. It might give them some ideas. I just, one caution I have about not my porn, but mainstream porn is that often pegging is depicted as a dominant submissive dynamic where the guy taking the dick is like, you're my bitch, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's, the, and so I just, He's the bitch. yeah, so I just want to caution them and say, that's a particular trope in mainstream porn. And actually the dynamic between the two of you can be whatever you want it to be. It doesn't have to be this sort of one way of like very dommy and subby. Also, if you watch mainstream porn, people go from zero to 60 in anal in mainstream porn in a way that people in their bedrooms don't go from zero to 60. They often edit out the prep. They often edit out or leave out the anal foreplay or the opening up that a person needs to do and relaxing a person needs to do before you get to the fucking. You can't go from the ass not being really paid attention to, to throwing a dick or a dildo or a plug in there instantaneously, as you might see in mainstream representations of anal sex and porn. Right. And even porn stars actually use butt plugs. I mean, I've been on the set and I know that, and it just gets cut out of the final product. So I want to circle back to, to one of her points. How big a deal is it if you can't feel what's going on? I think as you do it more and more, you get used to what your partner likes. Like you said in the beginning, listening to their body language, getting their verbal feedback. I think as you go on, you figure out the positions they like, the techniques, the speed, the depth. You can get into a rhythm, so to speak, and literally, and and I think it's okay. And I, I think that it can be such a connective experience. It sounds like, oh my God, there's this thing between us and it has no nerve endings. And so how is this going to be good? But In my experience, strap-on sex can be deeply intimate, incredibly pleasurable. It's it's an amazing experience. I know I'm jumping around. It's early and I haven't had enough tea today. So I want to jump back to a point that you made, which is that let him be in control of the depth and speed and pace of penetration at first. That's, I think, a misconception that a lot of people have about anal sex is that the bottom is giving up all control and the top is driving it. And at least, you know, and some bottoms want to get there where the top is really throwing them around and in charge and, and, and driving it. But at least initially, the bottom is in control. Absolutely. It needs to be in control at the start. And some for some bottoms, the entire time. But you go at the bottom space oh, to begin. Yes, always. It sounds counterintuitive because of the ways that we represent sex sort of in mainstream culture. But I always mm-hmm. say that the bottom. And I also think the bottom gets to pick the dick. Um, for me, when someone says, I want to have strap on sex with you, you know, I go to the store and say, it's your ass. So you get to pick the dick actually. (laughs) So she shouldn't surprise him with a strap on. No, I think they should buy it together. So don't Myra Breckenridge that there's a 70 year old pop culture reference for the kids. Okay. Last topic, um, brands to avoid advice. They're going to go shopping. You just give a little bit of shopping advice. He picks the dick. Anything else you should know? He picks the dick. I would like her to see, uh, get a silicone dick. Like my favorite first strap on dick is the mistress dildo by Vixen. And in terms of the strap-on harness, she can either go sort of leather or vegan style, or she can go for one that feels more like underwear. 
So it depends on, you know, you can often try them on over your clothes at the really nice high-end places. And it depends on what feels the best to her. Okay. And lots of lube. That would be our last of course. Advice. Lots and lots of lube in addition to lots and lots of foreplay. Tristan Taramino, author of Pick It Up, Read It, The Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex for Women. I have it on my shelf and I've referred to it in the past and recommended it so many times to women I know personally and women I've spoken to through the column and the podcast. And she is the host of the podcast and my bitter rival, host of the podcast Sex Out Loud, one of the best uh, non-savage love cast sex and relationship shows out there. I'm going to quote you on that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tristan. It was a real pleasure. Bye. Hey, Dan. This is uh, Paul in Atlanta. And I just wanted to call and say that I am so grateful for you. For um, a number of years ago, you, you, you came out about liking squishy guys. And, and my boyfriend uh, slash future husband, swishy. And, and yeah, you gave me permission. And I'm so grateful for that. We have a really great sex life, actually. We've been together five years. And we've begun to explore some new territories. And uh, recently went to a, a, an uncomfortable place where he kind of brought up um, something that was a bit more of the role play that was somebody who's paused making somebody who isn't, uh, you know, who's negative pause and some of the language and words used around that. Um, I played into it and actually, you know, found it to be pretty fucking hot, actually, in the way we kind of role played it. Uh, felt a little weird afterwards, but we talked and I, we're both negative and I made clear to him that that was a very much an end the moment thing. And he agreed too, but let me feel kind of squicky and I kind of want to wrap my head around this and also be a force of, you know, somebody who, you know, can guide others and how that is fun for maybe role play, but not really in real life. We are open to playing with others. We haven't yet, but I definitely want to have some rules and boundaries around that sort of thing. You know, I I feel bad about it on one level, and I just kind of want to know, you know, how to take that and and be cool with it um, in the best way that helps everybody involved. Because, yeah, it's hot as hell in the moment, but there's real, real awfulness that comes with that, even in the day of prep and all that, so... I'm a uh, Gen Xer, so he's a little younger. He's a millennial, so I lived through the whole AIDS crisis and remember everything, condoms all the time. And so I understand there's a lot of cooped up mess around that. Anything you can like add to that and tell me how I can help and, 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 and help others is, uh, would be great. Just kind of want to make sure that I'm on the right side of, uh, right side of good here and the campsite rule, I guess. Your call blew my mind, not because of the issues you present, but because literally this weekend I was having a conversation with a couple of gay friends about how you don't hear about this anymore. Fifteen years ago, it was all over the news. Twenty years ago, bug chasers. It was this phenomenon that there were people who had eroticized getting infected or infecting someone. And there were big stories in Rolling Stone and Out Magazine and there was a lot of – hand-wringing about what this meant, about the rot at the heart of the, the gay community. And of course, all it meant was that for you know a couple of decades, it had been really transgressive to have sex without condoms, to infect someone intentionally. And we should know that anything that, that's transgressive, anything that's taboo, a certain small segment of everybody will eroticize that thing, that it will turn them on. People eroticize the things that they fear – and gay men had lived for a very long time and younger gay people who grew up during the AIDS epidemic had 
just steeped in this terror of becoming infected. And a small percentage of the gay men out there and bi men out there eroticized that fear and turned it into this kind of role play. And unfortunately, in some cases, not role play, that there were people who actually did this shit. But it all sort of went away when prep and zero viral loads and undetectable equals uninfectious came along and getting infected was no longer a death sentence. It was no longer this terrifying thing. And so infecting someone or getting infected wasn't this transgressive fatal taboo anymore. It wasn't this hugely transgressive act. It was an inconvenient circumstance. It meant you had passed a chronic lifelong medical condition onto someone and not the scarlet HIV and not a potential or likely death sentence. And then your call, I had this conversation this weekend and then coming in and I hear your call that you and your boyfriend are the last two people, the last two gay men in America role-playing a bug-chasing fantasy. And the answer to your question is pretty simple. Is this okay? Yes, it's okay. Sounds like you guys have really talked it out and you're being very articulate about this taboo transgressive fantasy and your neg and he's neg. And even if you were pause and he was neg and he was on prep and your viral load was undetectable, it would be okay to role-play this fantasy. It is, of course, okay, permissible for two consenting adults, even advisable for two consenting adults, to role-play whatever fantasy turns them on together safely and consensually. And that is exactly what you did. Hey, Dan. I am a single early 40s gay guy in a major East Coast city, and I was calling for some dating advice. I just had a really great first date on Friday. It was a coffee date that wound up lasting like over six hours, turned into dinner, and was just a, it was just a really, really great date. And I'm 98% sure the interest was mutual, and I'm also relatively sure there would have been a second and or third date you know, this, this week, um, except uh, the problem is he is a, uh, he's a successful um, performer, which means he's out of town quite a bit. And so we had a date on Friday, and then he left on Sunday for a gig that's going to keep him out of town for about two months. When we texted late Friday night after the date, you know, when I you know texted to say thank you, he said, you know, he looked forward to seeing me when he gets back and that I should feel free to, you know, call or text while he was out of town. But my question is, like, I'm not quite sure how to build the momentum here and, like, keep him interested while he's away because I feel like I'm, the, I'm kind of in this, like, catch-22 because, like, on the one hand, with him not being in town, don't really have the opportunity to you know, interact face to face and, you know, kind of get increasingly flirty with one another, you know, and kind of like build up to, you know, going home with each other or whatever. Um, but then on the flip side, I feel like I also don't have available to me the kinds of things I might do if I had like, if I were already in a relationship with someone who was like working out of town for an extended period, right? Like, I feel like we're not at the stage where I can send him, you know, certain you know, flirty pictures or even do something like sending flowers on, you know, opening night. Like, I feel like there are just like boundaries that I'm not ready, you know, like the kinds of things I might do with someone I was intimate with who was, who was, you know, long distance. I feel like we're not quite at that, that place yet. And it's just hard to read like the, the whole flirting and getting to know you thing through text messages and phone calls. So I'm just wondering if you have any, any strategies for like how, I might work to to keep this guy who I think is interested. What I what I can do to kind of balance like 
keeping him interested while he's out of town for six weeks, but also not, you know, crossing any lines that make me look like a, a, a clingy, like a clingy psycho. You are overthinking this. You had one date and then he had to go out of town and he invited you to, to stay in contact, to, to text or call. So text, text when you think of him, call when you feel like it, ask him how his day is going and see where it goes. You're going to have a conversation mostly via text because people rarely get on the phone anymore. And it may wind up going to an erotic, dirty place. You may wind up swapping dirty pictures. Who knows where it will go? But where it goes depends on how the interaction with him unfolds. And you're both going to be leading and following each other during that interaction. There are plenty of people out there who are exchanging flirty texts and dirty pictures with people they haven't even been on a date with yet. So it wouldn't be some crazy violation of a social norm in the gay community or in any community if it went there. Of course, you don't want to go there instantaneously. The first text you send him shouldn't be a dick pic. You're going to want to feel him out and he's going to want to feel you out. So Take it easy. Ask him how his show is going. Ask him how rehearsals are going. Tell him what's up with you. Don't overwhelm him with texts. Demonstrate that you have good judgment, which I think is the underappreciated virtue and what people are often looking for in others without being able to articulate. Demonstrate to him that you have good judgment. A couple of texts every other day while he's gone thinking of you. And then who knows? You may wind up having... An extended conversation in text. He may text you in the middle of the night that he's horny and he'll send you a sign or you'll send him a sign. One of you will broach the subject. And then who knows? Maybe you'll wind up on Skype rubbing one out together. Important caveat. You had one date with this guy. He's out of town for two months. Stay in contact as he invited you to, but don't put your life on hold. You're not in a committed relationship. You should continue to date other guys in his absence as he should and probably will see other guys while he's gone because somebody could come along in the next six weeks who could be the person you spend the rest of your life with the 6.7 that you round up to the one, or he could meet that person while he's away. He could be working with that person right now. And so you shouldn't put yourself on hold in his absence. You should be open to other people, other potential partners, but keep lines of communication open with him too as he invited you to, and stop overthinking this. Smoke some pot, dude, and send him a text. Hi, Dan. I work as a nanny, and I take care of a seven-year-old girl to whom I give baths. And this most recent bath session, she took around a nail brush, I guess that's what it was, and started pleasuring herself. At first, she just started giggling and I was like, are you tickling yourself? And she just giggled. But then she started to make sex noise. I mean, ah, ah. anyway, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and I, I didn't say anything about it because last thing I want to do is shame her. And I have decided I don't want to tell the mother about it because the mother knowing her will get purple in the face and won't want to talk about it. Um, I just was wondering if there is anything I should do or should I just leave it alone? There are kids that kid's age who masturbate, who pleasure themselves, who play with their 
clitorises or play with their penises and derive pleasure from it. If the sounds this girl was making in the tub when she was stimulating herself were authentic sounds of self-pleasure that a child might make and might make without inhibition, not knowing that there was something inappropriate or quote-unquote wrong uh, about doing this in front of someone else, then you could let it slide. You could maybe say to the child, if you didn't want to speak to the mother, hey, that's something you do when you're alone. That's not something you do in front of another person. If you want to touch yourself, you want to touch your privates, that's a private thing. And here I am in the room, so now is not the time. But from your recounting, the sounds she made were exaggerated. The sounds she made were kind of porny and adulty. And so I do think you're going to have to risk a conversation with the mother. If you don't want to look at her face, get purple. If you don't want her in the moment to blame you somehow for sexualizing her child, send her an email detailing what happened. Because it could be this child has been exposed to pornography at an early age. And if the other parent or some friend her age or older is showing her pornography or leaving pornography where she can find it, mom and or dad is going to have to intervene. They're going to have to figure out the fuck is going on and put a stop to it, hopefully in a non-shamey way that doesn't wind up scarring this child. There's also the smaller chance that someone has abused this child. And if someone is abusing this child and sexually exploiting this child, then mom certainly needs to know and the cavalry needs to be called in. So I'm afraid you're going to have to have this conversation with the parent. The way you describe mom, she sounds pretty sexually repressed, maybe sex negative, and you may be the messenger who gets shot. You go and you tell this repressed sex negative parent that their child is behaving in this way and they get so upset and angry about it and the mother's panic and her anger gets directed inappropriately at you. But that's a risk you're going to have to take because there's a possibility here this child is either being exposed to pornography prematurely or sexually exploited by an adult. So have that convo with mom or send that email to mom. Hi, Dan. I'm 35 years old and I live in Seattle, Washington. I've lived on the West Coast for about 15 years and my parents are back in the Dakotas. Although they tend to be quite liberal and progressive for where they're from, my father, um, who is claims to be a voting Democrat, uh, but uh, anyone but Hillary still, is a part of my life and I am a birth mother. My son lives in Los Angeles, and we're thinking about having a meeting with me and uh, for my bio son to meet his bio grandpa. I want to teach my father not only generally (laughs) uh, some political graces, so he's welcomed into this family. Um, It's an open adoption, but they're not obligated to uh, spend any certain amount of time with them. I want them to... um, be close and in each other's lives. The specific issue I'm worried about is my son is mixed and his uh, mother, adoptive mother, is also mixed. And my father, uh, coming from the Dakotas, doesn't have a lot of experience with people of color. And when he gets nervous, he makes tacky jokes and it's part of his defense mechanism to be friends. 
So my question to you, Dan, is how could I possibly get my, I don't know if there's like online classes, he doesn't even really use a computer, but how could I teach him to have some self-control and some better judgment so that he can have a relationship with his uh, grandson and his grandson's mother, who is not me? (laughs) Thanks, Dan. So dad, when he's feeling uncomfortable, makes racist comments that he thinks are jokes. You say tacky things. He says tacky things, racially insensitive things. Let's not gild that turd. Dad says racist shit. Talk to dad about the racist shit he says. Walk dad through what you have observed over the course of your life. That when he's in a situation where he feels uncomfortable and there are people of other races around, basically whenever he leaves fucking North Dakota – He says these inappropriate things and you know it's not out of malice or you assume it's not out of malice. Are you willing to suspend your disbelief and give your dad some sort of credit that he may not deserve and not regard it as malicious but other people will experience it as malicious and therefore it is as good as malicious. But other people will experience it as malicious and insensitive and therefore it is just a fucking racist goddamn thing to say. Or do. Presumably, it's not going to come as a shock to your dad that his biological grandson is of mixed race. Presumably, it's not going to come as a shock to your dad that your biological son's mother is mixed race. You're going to have to run some interference. You're going to have to do some advance work with your dad, not some online course that you can send him to. You can't outsource this. You are the point person here. You're going to have to force the change that you want to see in your dad's world. So talk to dad. Make sure that he understands that if he shits this bed, that's it. He's not going to have a relationship of any sort with his biological grandson or his mom, both of whom, because they believe in and honor the spirit of open adoption, are willing to to meet with him and, and allow for a connection and a relationship. If he wants that connection, if he wants that relationship, He needs to get a fucking grip. He needs to be an adult. He needs to be in charge of the shit that comes out of his mouth. And he can be. I use the word fuck a lot. I use the word fuck constantly. When I go on television or I'm on NPR, the word fuck does not come out of my mouth because I can turn that shit off. Your dad has to learn how to turn this shit off. To be a better person, he needs to learn how to turn this shit off. But if he wants to have a relationship with his biological grandson, he absolutely positively has to get past this. You should make it a condition of his having contact with your biological son and your biological son's family that he demonstrate to you that he has worked through this and gotten a grip and gotten past it. And then when the meeting is going to happen, have a conversation with your biological son's mother about the person that your dad was on the off chance that he says the wrong thing so that they're not blindsided if the person that your dad was is the person that he is still. Hi, Dan. I'm a 49-year-old black gay man. And um, 21 months ago, I became a widower when my husband of 16 years died suddenly and unexpectedly, leaving me the sole parent of our two boys, 10 and 15. Um, The reason I'm calling is because after about a year, I finally was ready to have sex again. And before I met my husband, I explored my interest in 
different uh, different kinks, which my husband wasn't into. So for the last 16 years, they were kind of on hold, except for my lifelong foot fetish, which he did indulge. But I'm also a sub slash slave, like being dominated and feeling owned and controlled. And I recently got into chastity in the past year or so, and, and that really blew my mind that I would get into it in the first place. But I wanted to have a key holder. And when I finally did have sex again, it um, was with a younger guy who's about 20 years younger than me and uh, is an escort. Um, And he wanted to be my key holder. And I was turned on by him and turned on by the idea. So he became my key holder and it evolved into a master-slave kind of thing where I go over and service him regularly and even do chores like holding his laundry, washing dishes, cleaning the bathroom, taking out the garbage. I'm getting what I, what I pay for, I guess, but I'm wondering if this is exploitive or not, or if I'm letting myself be exploited. I don't want to think about the amount of money that I've spent <laughs> on, on this guy. I, I can't quite, get him out of my head and I'm kind of addicted to, to seeing him. But I did tell him recently that I have to scale back on the uh, financial demands. I just don't know how to proceed with this or, or if I should let it go on. And uh, I've only figured out how to fit sex in during the day when my kids are in school. I haven't, haven't figured out how to you know get a babysitter so that I can go out and enjoy myself with people who are available in the evenings who, who are working during the day because um, I've taken some time off work um, for family. So that's my, that's my question, I guess. Am, am I get, letting myself get into a bad situation? Am I letting myself be exploited? Maybe that's what I want. I just want some, some thoughts. Everything you're getting from this escort at a price you can get from another gay man who's into dom-sub sex for free. The money you're spending on the escort, you can spend on a babysitter and you can go out and you can socialize. You can join the local BDSM group or gay BDSM group uh, in the community nearest to you. You can join the local BDSM group or gay men's BDSM club in your area and – Start dating guys that you don't have to pay for their attention. You know that I am pro-sex work and pro-sex worker. I don't think there's anything wrong with what you've done or what the sex worker has done. You entered into a commodified relationship with him. It was helpful to you and, and affirming to you, you know, after your grief. And my heart goes out to you and your kids, the death of your husband and their other father. And you found this guy and his attention and what he was able to do for you revived you erotically. And now it's time to wean yourself from him. Not because he did anything wrong, not there's anything wrong about what you guys have done, but because this is, and I think you're calling because you know it is unsustainable financially and emotionally. He can't ever be there for you like a partner could or a group of play partners who know and like you and, and want to be with you without there being a, a financial 
element or a financial benefit. But you're going to have to do the work of finding those guys and they are out there. And while you do the work of finding those guys, you can still see this guy every once in a while to, to scratch that itch as you transition away from seeing an escort. That escort who really helped you and really did you a service. Well, now it's time to go find what he's been giving you for free. Finding it for free means doing a little bit more work. It's going to require some effort. You're going to have to put yourself out there. And you should. Everything he's been giving you. And he gave you good stuff. Real service for the money that you paid him. You can find for free. And speaking of free, you said that your kids are 10 and 15. And speaking of free, your kids are 10 and 15. A 15-year-old should be able to watch their 10-year-old sibling for a couple of hours while dad is out at a meeting of his local gay male BDSM club. But the kids won't know that. And the kids don't need to know that. Again, really sorry for your loss and your grief. My heart goes out to your whole family. It's time to end this connection with this escort. You know it. You called because you know it, and you just needed the push, and I'm giving it to you. All right, we are almost out of time, but let's quickly pop over to Twitter. Math updates for bisexuals, tweets, crash on my couch, and Savage Lovecast. Happy to join you on your couch. Eve Conroy tweeted, have a confession make, never listen to podcasts in my life, hit me up with a recommendation. And Bittersweet Tree tweeted back, Dan Savage's love cast. Thank you, Bittersweet Tree, for the recommendation. And Sylvanon tweets, listening to Savage Love Cast about emotional infidelity. Who cares if emotional infidelity is real or not? All that matters is how partners feel about each other's actions. Studies have shown that dismissing feelings doesn't make them go away. Who knew? At fake Dan Savage, you wanted to make sure I saw it. Um, yeah, but what if your partner is irrational what if your partner's feelings are controlling and manipulative and weaponized as abusers often do they weaponize their precious fifis so i respectfully disagree if you want me to read your tweets on the savage lovecast be sure to hashtag savage lovecast and here now some response calls hey there this is for the dad whose daughter is playing tackle football dan i'm afraid your sports ignorance is showing i played a lot of tackle sports and there's a lot of incidental contact, but the relationship between a center and quarterback is very intimate, no matter the anatomy. Those fingers are right up next to the labia or scrotum and the inner thigh. What I would recommend is that he look into what's called a pelvic protector, often sold for hockey and wrestling. It's just some padding that'll provide protection of all sorts that his daughter's lady bits may appreciate. I would also recommend that he start talking to his daughter and her coaches in an empowering way, just about how emotions and bodies change in puberty. It may make sense for her to start cross-training for other positions that kind of fit where she's going to be in a few years. Hey, Dan. This is a call and response to the guy who had the boyfriend with the uh, gambling issue. I am a pro poker player, and when I got together with my then boyfriend, he was not into gambling whatsoever. So we did the Susie Orman method of splitting our finances where we put a certain percentage of our income into a joint account. And that was our money that we used to pay everything with. And the remaining percent went to our own personal accounts where we could do really anything we please. And it's been awesome. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at-risk youth. Uh, I have some thoughts for the sugar baby in episode 627. Uh, as a reformed cheater myself, uh, I recognize your sugar daddy's pattern of behavior because it's what I used to do. When I was 
seeing women who weren't my partner, uh, you know, I would always make excuses to them about why they couldn't stay at my apartment or why we couldn't go to certain bars or do other activities. And when I suspected that a woman wanted to get more serious, I would start dropping hints that it wouldn't work out long term. And I think that's what he's doing when he tells you that he feels guilty uh, and he can't meet your needs. You know, he doesn't want to break things off, but he also doesn't want to be with you long term. And the fact that you haven't been to his house and the fact that you feel hidden, you know, suggests to me that he doesn't want to blow up his marriage. I mean, the fact that you haven't met his daughter, I don't think that's a big deal, but all of the other things, you know, suggest to me that it's not going to work out. And I would go as far as to say that unless you've seen the court documents, I would be skeptical that he's even separated. You know, you're 22 years old at the end of the day, and you have decades of dating and romance ahead of you. And if you want a long-term partner, you deserve a long-term partner who wants to be with you. And I don't think that this guy wants to be with you. So, DTMFA. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number for the Savage Lovecast. If you would like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. And if you want us to catch your comments on Twitter, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. The 14th Annual Hump Opening Festival is in full swing in Seattle and opens this weekend in San Francisco and Portland, Oregon. There are still some tickets available in these three cities. And you know how they're always telling us that this election is the most important election of our lifetimes, but this year it's really true? Well, we've always told you that this year's hump is the best hump ever, but this year it is really true. This is an amazing lineup of brand new films made just for hump audiences. Get your tickets now at humpfilmfest.com. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Tristan Taromino on Twitter at Tristan Taromino. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for listening.